to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, Camilla Burcott interviews Vincent Bernard, head of the International Committee for the Red Cross Forum for Law and Policy in Geneva. My name is Camilla Burcott. I'm a research officer at the Development Policy Centre, and it's my great pleasure to be sitting down today with Vincent Bernard, who is the head of the ICRC's Forum for Law and Policy and the Editor-in-Chief of the International Review of the Red Cross. Did I get that right? Yes. Excellent. Welcome. Thank you very much for being here. Um, perhaps you can just tell us what, what, what brings you to Australia. Yes. Thank you for your invitation. Um, we're here because we have a series of events on uh, principles guiding humanitarian action. And uh, tomorrow we'll have um, a conference here in Canberra about the militarization of aid. It's actually a debate uh, where we will um, discuss the opportunities and the risks that the growing use of military means and capacities to conduct uh, humanitarian operations can represent. So um, we we'll hope we hope that we'll have a very interesting discussion. Mm, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be it'll be fascinating. I think it's something that um, is a bit new to some people, or some people don't know that much about it. So maybe you could sort of give us a bit of background. I mean, is this our military is increasingly involved in humanitarian assistance? It's something that we have seen um, developing uh, time and again. You see the military involved in in uh, providing relief. Uh, I think it's quite common in situations of disasters. Uh, we see it also in times of uh, conflicts. Uh, and actually, uh, they have a role to play, uh, definitely. And even uh, in <coughs> international maritime law, um, the Geneva Conventions provide that the military have a role to play, for instance, in the evacuation of wounded civilians, uh, in making sure that uh, the civilian population, uh, you know, is spared from, from the fightings. Uh, but definitely they have a role to play. What is n- relatively new is that humanitarian action is used uh, as part of the military effort or has been used as part of the military effort um, in order, for instance, to win the hearts and minds of the population as part of counterinsurgency. And we've seen that um, uh, often in, in recent conflicts that there is a conflation between the military agenda and the humanitarian agenda. And that's where problems start, in our view. Mm. And do you think, I mean, is that something that, that conflation, do you think that's something that's being done deliberately or is that something that's uh, there's sort of a misunderstanding between humanitarian sort of traditional humanitarian organizations and militaries about what what they're doing what their roles are i think um, uh, it can be deliberate in the sense that some military interventions have been justified on humanitarian grounds Mm -hmm. and i think that's something which is likely to happen again Mm -hmm. and then it can create the perception in the mind of the people that actually um, uh, they are good victims and they are bad victims. And while taking side in the so-called humanitarian intervention, we actually uh, take uh, um, uh, the risk that uh, humanitarian action will be perceived as one-sided. And, and humanitarian action is not one-sided. By definition, it has to be impartial. And uh, in some circumstances, uh, it will be conflated with political or military interests. Um, another situation is when um, humanitarian aid, goods, assistance, uh, uh, 
the provision of services, is used by the military deliberately in order to gain the support of uh, a segment of the population. And this is deliberate. This is clearly deliberate. And it creates, it can create uh, the perception that actually humanitarian action is part of um, uh, military or uh, political agenda. Mm. And this creates a direct risk for those who are conducting genuine humanitarian assistance, which is impartial by definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess there's sort of two situations in that, you know, you mentioned earlier the military is just involved in relief, for example, in natural disasters, that sort of thing. And that seems less problematic than, than in actual conflict situations. It's really the conflict, the conflict areas where where it's a, this is potentially really an issue. Absolutely, because people may, may not realize that actually uh, providing humanitarian assistance in, in, in situations of conflict is not something which is uh, easily done. Mm. Um, it's, it's a space you need to negotiate. And for humanitarian actors, like the International Committee of the Red Cross and, and other humanitarian organizations, we face lots of challenges in today's conflicts. Today's conflicts are often of non-international character, Uh, they oppose armed groups, which are often very fragmented. It's difficult to know um, where is the chain of command uh, to get the security guarantees we need to operate. In some regions, there is um, uh, total lack of states and, and crime uh, proliferates uh, around the conflict or as part of the conflict. So it's, it, there are often extremely dangerous environments in which we operate. So the question of trust Uh, is key for humanitarian actors to operate in these environments. Mm -hmm. And trust is built um, out of uh, the perception that we are truly humanitarians, that we are not there to pursue some other interests. And when other actors use the same kind of uh, equipments, uh, look like humanitarian actors, mm -hmm. or provide assistance in exchange of information or support, then they, 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 they jeopardize the capacity of humanitarian actors to operate in the same area. Mm, yeah. And I think that, yeah, the issue of trust is really, seems really critical. Also, um, when you do have situations where there are perhaps militaries using, they're providing humanitarian assistance that might be, um, how should we say, Yeah, not genuinely humanitarian or not entirely humanitarian, then you get an issue of trust between humanitarian groups and militaries. If, if humanitarian groups, are there situations in which humanitarian groups might want to partner with militaries? Um, are there benefits that working with militaries can bring um, in those situations? Well, uh, military can, 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 um, do lots of good in, 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 uh, in situations of emergencies because they have logistics. Mm -hmm. They have a capacity to, to mobilize um, means that few other actors have. Um, uh, as I said, uh, the, in a situation of conflicts, uh, they can provide assistance and sometimes they have an obligation to do so. However, this situation should be distinguished from situations where Um, their participation in, in um, humanitarian assistance or, or their, uh, the, the, the fact that they will instrumentalize humanitarian assistance can create this misperception and this blurring of lines between, on one side, what should remain an impartial um, action on, uh, ba based on the principle of humanity, 
and on the other side, political or military interests. So, um, uh, even though in situations of disaster or in certain situations well defined where there is a clear distinction between what the military are doing and what humanitarian actors are doing, it, it's it's perfectly fine to have military actors mm. uh, delivering humanitarian assistance. They should be very careful not to create this confusion and not to um, conduct humanitarian operations uh, to pursue military or political interest. Mm -hmm. But this being said, humanitarian actors themselves have also a, a responsibility. Uh, for instance, when certain humanitarian actors uh, accept armed escorts or um, actually uh, align uh, with certain groups in, in um, situations of conflicts, uh, they also uh, create misperceptions. So it's also the responsibility of humanitarian actors to also truly deliver impartial humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's um, better communication between... Yeah, I think a lot of it seems to rely on some good communication between humanitarian organizations and militaries, and they seem like two groups that don't traditionally speak to each other very much. Do you think there's... Is there increasing communication or increasing um, fora or, or research or engagement that's sort of helping these two sides, if we like, to, to potentially work together better or to at least communicate better with each other? I think the International Committee of the Red Cross has been trying consistently to work with uh, not only uh, military armed forces, but also all, all sides in, uh, in armed conflicts, including with non-state armed groups, and to uh, establish this trust and establish the, the capacity to um, uh, work in the same area. So um, I think this, this dialogue is extremely important uh, so that we uh, understand each other and understand the constraints of each other. And this dialogue is uh, indispensable in order to get security, in, in, especially in, in situations, um, in, in contemporary situations of conflicts where we have... Uh, extremely complex situations with many different actors being involved. Uh, so the, this dialogue definitely needs to take place um, and, and the International Committee of the Red Cross is trying definitely to contribute to this type of dialogue. Um, so similar to there being uh, the humanitarian situations these days being more complex, I think it's my impression that we're also seeing more protracted conflicts and more conflicts where you get sort of a complication or blurring between, you know, once humanitarian assistance and sort of emergency aid versus long-term development. Um, and I think that adds another, it seems to me that would add another layer of complication to how groups are, are interacting in, in, those, in those conflict areas. And that's a very important point you're raising because it's true that uh, protracted situations of conflicts, um, but also long-term occupations, as we, we see, for instance, in the case of uh, Israel and, and, and the Palestinian territories, um, uh, creates situations extremely complex for humanitarian actors because it creates a, a dilemma for them, um, uh, a choice to make between um, the... the answering to the needs of the population uh, and uh, the needs in terms of assistance or protection on one side. And on the other side, there is also the temptation to address some longer-term problems which are related to 
um, uh, the lack of um, uh, governance sometimes uh, or the lack of capacity of the state to provide services such as education, healthcare, and then the border between what is emergency assistance, which is traditionally the role of humanitarian actors on one side, and on the other side, um, the long-term development, which requires a different expertise, um, uh, is um, uh, difficult. It's difficult to make uh, this distinction. So um, I think um, uh, for humanitarian actors, uh, it is important for them to stick to a humanitarian mandate. Uh, uh, while sometimes, of course, uh, they need to um, uh, expand and address new types of problems, it is important that they uh, don't mix um, with uh, other agendas which, are, which could be related to um, uh, the rule of law in the country or the building of a different society or the implementation of international human rights. Mm -hmm. And this conflation between the international agenda on one side and the humanitarian mission on the other side can also create misperceptions and can also uh, endanger the um, uh, security of humanitarian workers. So there is a, a need to distinguish between humanitarian work and on the other side, other agendas of the international community in terms of development or regime change or uh, issues which may have very good and valid reasons but could be perceived by local actors as transformative and as um, uh, against their own culture or uh, traditional uh, ways uh, of life. And often quite have a lot of political implications and power implications in, this, in those situations. Indeed. Mm. Um, but of course, um, uh, for humanitarian actors, uh, it's, it's a fine line because uh, uh, how um, uh, not to perceive the needs uh, uh, for education uh, of these populations or the need for uh, better health care. So I think um, uh, uh, we need complementarity. Mm -hmm. We need to respect the space of humanitarian actors and not to give humanitarian actors a too large mission, mm -hmm. simply because they are present and because they have a capacity to operate. Um, I think uh, international, the international community should refrain from um, uh, giving them uh, a, a too large role. But we need... Um, also uh, to find a space for other actors to come in. And it's extremely difficult in situations of conflict and violence. Mm -hmm. and I suppose that also, that point you're, you're making also speaks to the need for good um, yeah, communication and knowledge sharing. You know, humanitarian actors may be in situations where they do have a lot of, they have information about what the education system is looking like, what's the status of um, the health system in a place. That If that sort of information they have can be shared with longer-term development actors or be shared with other actors. Um, sorry, I'm just hypothesizing now. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, just even if we don't expect them to act on it, there's still potentially valuable um, information and knowledge that could be, um, could be beneficial, could be helpful um, for somebody else to take up. Mm. Well, there, there, there is a dialogue to have, and I think... Um, uh, 
very often we hear about the exit strategies of humanitarian actors in, in situations of uh, long-term crisis or when the crisis is over, when do you leave the country? Mm. But we should also reflect about entry strategies of development actors. And so there is a, sometimes, okay, the need for ensuring this transition. And then, of course, the dialogue between the two types of actors can take place. Um, however, again, I think in the past few years, we've seen efforts by the international community to um, build like, integrated responses to crisis and, and uh, integrate humanitarian action within a larger package of measures, which range from uh, um, uh, building of a, a, a proper judicial system, um, uh, trying to work on gender equality, uh, uh, developing um, uh, social or economic um, uh, mechanisms. Uh, we think that humanitarian actors and humanitarian action should be kept separate mm -hmm. from, from these other agendas, uh, even though we may all agree that they may be necessary, but that's not the role of humanitarian actors to be engaged in, in, in those uh, other um, agendas of the international community. Um, I guess, yeah, well, we're sort of thinking a little bit about what is the role of humanitarian actors, what is sort of the, the focus. Um, I know that ICRC um, developed these principles of humanitarian action. And I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit more about what, what those principles actually are, where that's, they sort of came from and what they seek to do or what sort of how they seek to help guide the humanitarian sector. Well, um, we are referring um, to the seven fundamental principles of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Uh, which are the principles which guide the action of the, the components of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Um, but by extension, some of these principles have been adopted by the um, uh, larger humanitarian community. And so uh, then we speak mostly about four principles, the principle of humanity, uh, which gives the main reason why uh, we uh, act so it's on, 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 in order to help others that humanitarian action should be uh, carried out and, again, not to follow other objectives. Mm -hmm. uh, the principle of impartiality, uh, which is also key to the definition of what true humanitarian action is. So the idea that uh, assistance is provided according to the needs and not according to any preference, be it religious, national or... Uh, political, so uh, this is central to the definition of what is humanitarian action. And then uh, two other principles which uh, describe how humanitarian action should be carried out. Uh, first, uh, neutrality, which um, takes out humanitarian actors from political controversies, from um, taking side for, for one party or another in, in a situation of, of conflict. And finally, independence from political interests, from any other agenda. And these are principles which are there, independence and neutrality, to allow humanitarian actors to operate. Right, okay. Um, and lastly, I wonder if I could just throw you a broad question. Um, the World Humanitarian Summit is coming up next year, and I'm wondering uh, what you're hoping to see out of this. seems like quite a, a, a big opportunity and a... Um, I'm interested in what, you, what you're interested to see come out of that summit. Mm -hmm. I think um, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity uh, to um, uh, uh, 
bring back humanity at the center of the discussions of the international community. I think that's, that would be, if I have one expectation, it would be this. Because in, in the past few years, in, in recent months, we've seen um, so many atrocities uh, committed uh, during situations of conflicts um, that it's definitely the time to reflect on, on a new consensus, international consensus, on 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 key values for the the, the international community uh, and and to replace um, a basic sense of humanity uh, or common sense of humanity in in uh, international relations and so that's i think uh, something that definitely um, a, a, a discussion on on humanitarian issues um, in 2016 uh, should address. Mm -hmm. We think that issues uh, related to the protection of the civilian population should be discussed. Um, there are many other issues that can be discussed and, and many important issues related to the funding of humanitarian action, to uh, the effectiveness of humanitarian action and to the improvement of humanitarian response in general that could be discussed. But they are secondary to, to this uh, larger um, uh, issue of putting humanity at the center of the debate today. Mm -hmm. uh, so these, 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 are, these are our expectations. I think that would be great. As you say, there's so many complex, complicated, horrible things happening in the world, and it'd be good to, to sort of have that have that come out come out again. Um, that's all from me. I want to thank you again for for taking a few, some few minutes to chat. Um, it's it's been great, and best of luck with the rest of your with the debate and the rest of your trip. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Center. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.